The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everyone. This is Buck Joffrey's daughter at the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for that very nice introduction. That is my daughter, Camilla. Camilla, we're just going to start with a quick question here, a quick quiz. Camilla, what is the best way to make money? Start being an entrepreneur, and you could start a business or make a lemonade stand or be creative or for a cupcake stand or something. Yeah, you just start it yourself, and you're off to the races, right? And you hire people. Yeah, you hire people, and you make jobs, and that's a very good answer. Good girl, good girl. Well, thank you, Camilla. Today's show is going to be a good one, folks. Today, I have said before, but the wealth formula is not just about real estate. It is about entrepreneurship, as my daughter just said, and it's also about owning things, right? If it's real and it makes money. Like owning a house. That's right. Like owning a house. Well, that's a tricky one, right? It's an asset, and that's all that matters. And obviously, you can layer some conditions on top of that. For example, you may want to only invest in things that are tax advantaged, you might only want to invest in those things that are required to live. So automatic teller machines, ATMs as we know them, certainly fit those criteria. Investing in ATMs can be quite profitable. And because you are buying a piece of equipment, the government actually allows you to write off the full amount of your investment over five years. And that's not a bad deal at all, right? We also need money to live on, and while cash payments are becoming less common, the overall use of cash globally has actually increased over the last several years, especially those in the lower socioeconomic situations who really use cash and ATMs as a type of bank. So anyway, when I heard about this opportunity, I was fascinated and I had to share it with you. And I'm sure you'll feel the same way when you hear Daryl Heller from Heller Capital this week. But before we take a break, I just want to remind you to go to WealthFormula.com. If you are an accredited investor, now is the time to sign up for the Investor Club. We're having lots of opportunities starting literally within the next week or two that you don't want to miss out on. So you got to go there and click on it and then let's schedule a conversation and establish our relationship now. Also, you can go to wealthformula.com, sign up for the newsletter. You can also go to Ask Buck and I have some questions there waiting. So I will do one of those shows pretty soon. That said, when we come back, we will have Daryl Heller from Heller Capital talking to us about ATM machines. Welcome back, everybody. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets, such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. 
That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. Today, my guest is a serial entrepreneur and a venture capitalist that's founded various companies in telecom, technology, energy, real estate, and public exchange spaces. And the majority of these assets are portfolio companies under what is known as a Heller Capital LLC. And this is a boutique private equity firm. One of its asset targets, of all things, is ATM machines. You know, the things that you literally go and get cash out when you're buying something for cash or, or whatever. And he has graciously offered his time to give us a sense of this market as an asset class. So welcome to the show, Daryl, and thanks for being here. Buck, thank you. It's a pleasure to join you and, and your people, and I count it a privilege, so thanks. Great. Now, this is going to be brand new to people who listen to my show, because a lot of times we're talking about real estate, we're talking about energy, oil and gas, etc. You know, So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this world of ATM machines. Yeah, kind of an interesting play. My background, as you noted, is an entrepreneur mostly in telecom and technology spaces or derivatives of those. And this is a bit of an offshoot from it. However, I entered it through a form of a technology play where we were looking at this space being a quasi real estate play and that you would secure locations in very coveted areas. And we had a particular technology relative to advertising that we felt could monetize this type of asset. So I entered it back in February of 2011. I conducted significant diligence into the space. And, you know, here we are today with a very sound investment. We have a strong track record. We're just starting to reap some of the benefits of advertising monetization, which I can speak to at a, a later point. Yeah, along that line. So tell us, how does someone make money from owning or owning a fractional part of a fund or whatever, how do you make money from an ATM machine, you know, with regard to the fees and advertising, all that? Sure. So let me just kind of extract it down in a, a very simple sense. The investor, or in this case, Prestige Fund D, there's a fund that these investors would be part of, purchases an ATM, and then our management company will place, operate, insure, and maintain the ATM. So from there, you say, well, you know, what does that mean and how do we still make money? Well, we or the investor who owns the ATM receives a portion of the surcharge revenue each month, as well as any advertising revenue, which we're just starting to see some benefit from that would occur from that ATM or that location. So, for example, for those that have used ATMs, you know, a typical surcharge is, you know, two fifty could be up to three dollars. On certain places it may be two twenty-five, but let's just use the illustrious purposes two fifty. So at a two fifty surcharge, approximately twenty-five percent of that comes through to the investors so somewhere in that sixty-three, sixty-four, sixty-five cent range, and thirty-five to forty percent of that to a location owner, and then thirty-five to forty percent is retained by the management company to again operate, insure, and maintain the ATM. So it, the money made is really a byproduct of the surcharge that occurs to that user to use the ATM. So the consumer who pays that surcharge, we get a piece of that because we own the ATM. So you can talk a little bit about that advertising piece, because obviously when I go to an ATM machine, I look at it and, 
you know, yeah, I, I get the part where it's, you know, they say it's going to be 250 to do this. Do you want to keep going? Yeah, I have to. That's why I'm doing this, right? But what about the advertising? Because I haven't seen much of that yet. So there's a couple different levels uh, that we're pursuing. One strategy is what you're seeing more and more of, we're putting video toppers on our ATM. So any ATM that would be purchased or that any of these investors would be part of would have a video topper on it. So we are developing density in places like New York City and places such as LA. We're actually starting to develop a nice pocket in San Francisco, big in Chicago, et cetera, where we'll become very viable for regional campaigns. So, so is that kind of like if you when you go to the gas station now, sometimes they have the videos on top of the pumps where they're doing advertisements. Is that the well, kind of thing? That's the exact target. Okay, got it's it. Very, very similar in nature. It's tied to that. So essentially, it, it captures a consumer from two levels. Naturally, the individual using the ATM, it's eye level and they're seeing it. And by the way, as an aside, we've recently developed software that will integrate the video topper, the actual screen that you're conducting the ATM transaction on, as well as the receding. So you know, it increases our interest level and viability to many advertisers who may want to, you know, put mortgages out there where, you know, they can be integrating with the top screen, the mid screen, and they can be doing couponing in and out of it. You know, Subway could advertise with us and those users that are taking their ATM receipt could get a dollar off, you know, foot long. So, yes, it is similar to what you're starting to see at gas pumps. And that's one element of it. The second element, and I will be careful not to go too deep into detail, is really around proximity marketing. So that's a broad term, broad definition. Some of you are probably familiar with it. But we have various levels of mobile technology that we either have in development. I personally am invested in quite a few companies right now that we believe will ultimately monetize these ATM assets. And that is more similar to when you have a mobile phone that we will be able to ping that phone or hit that phone and send couponing out. And we're using the ATM to either create Bluetooth opportunity, Wi-Fi opportunity, or in some cases, we're doing various forms of other technology that allows us to hit a mobile phone and, and we're centering all that from or out of the ATM. And our ATMs actually are packaged with or distributed with that technology. So that's a little more in the future side. We're still in the process of hardening that, but we do believe that there's a significant upside in the coming years relative to seeing proximity marketing play out heavily in the ATM space, namely because of, again, where these are located. Getting back to sort of basics, I mean, I would think that a significant part of the success of one of these machines really has to be where it's placed. And how do you know, or do you have like some data or how do you know where to put these things? Yeah, another great question, Buck. So we have multiple elements of our vetting process and criteria that we hold ourselves to. And I'll just provide optics on a few of them. First, we only take on existing proven locations. And when I say only, at least 99 plus percent of our ATMs are replacing existing. So that then allows us as a kind of a second point to do historical due diligence and understand and analyze historical performance. So we always conduct two to three years analysis of the performance of the ATM. So we know that it meets our minimum criteria. You know, another element of our vetting process is demographics. And you're going to find us typically close, as I noted earlier, to tier one cities 
And one of the primary drivers to that is the EBT market. The EBT market is the debit cards, the welfare system that our country has. And that whole system moved to debit cards sometime back. And that really has changed the usage of ATM in tier one cities. And then it's just the underserved as well. You know, those that are credit stressed, those that can't get credit cards, et cetera, you're fine more that demographic in tier one cities. And thus you just see performance level in those locations being much higher. So we look for convenience stores. We look for, you know, again, delis, those little grocers in New York City and, and all tier one cities. You'll find us a lot on travel plazas, Pennsylvania, you know, Turnpike, we're on that as well as many other turnpikes across the, the country. So um, it, it's it's a process. There's a lot of diligence put into it and it's by no means random. And we refuse to go into locations because it has us assuming too much risk. Whereas, you know, we'll just take on a location or a group of retail stores that look attractive because you can get surprised quickly relative to what you think it will perform at as compared to what it does because it's so demographic based and it's somewhat geographically based as well. So lots of diligence and, and we're looking at history and we're only going into existing locations, which removes a lot of the risk. And another thing that it sounds like removes some of the risk is the fact that there is a fund involved. Can you explain a little bit about how an ATM fund you guys put together looks like. And specifically, you know, when I think about what you just talked about, you know, some ATMs performing better than others, et cetera, obviously, you know, if you're able to aggregate a number of these ATM machines and average out returns, you'd probably be in a safer situation than if you just bought one yourself, right? So what does a fund look like? Yeah, so what we've done, probably about 12 months into this, we started doing it. We quickly recognized that there's great deviation variations to a performance of an ATM. For example, if you're going to go to your local mall, there's probably four, five, six ATMs. And the one that's in the food court could do two, three, four times what the one, you know, at the entranceway coming into the mall does. So we saw there was tremendous volatility, which creates performance variances And one investor was getting a higher return than the other. And it was based on investor requests that we said, let's start to pull a bunch of diverse assets together, malls, convenience stores, a bunch of ATMs in tier one cities. And let's pull and blend the performance of those ATMs to bring, you know, fairness and equity to all investors. So when you look at our funds today and this fund in particular, it is pulling and aggregating the performance of ATMs that are residing in various geographies and various demographics relative to location. So we pull it together. Again, we know the history going back two, three years. So we substantiate what it has performed at and what we know it will perform at on a go forward based on how we see the future market. And each investor then essentially gets paid a flat environment based on what that pool does. So investor A and investor B and investor C are making the same amount of return each month. And they are getting assigned their specific ATMs. They get their serial numbers. They're getting the depreciation on those. However, they're getting the performance of a much larger pool of ATMs, which, again, brings more integrity to the process. Well, we all know that past performance doesn't always predict future returns. But can you give us an idea of what kind of returns investors in past projects, what types of returns they've gotten? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the ranges are generally into that 20 to 24% cash on cash returns. However, when you're going to pull this back to an internal rate of return, there's so many different metrics we can look at here. But I would say then you're looking in the low to mid teens 
And, you know, the real element here is you're buying your investment units, 104,000 as a minimum entrance point, and you're buying X amount of ATMs with that. And those ATMs is, you know, naturally are an asset that depreciates and we get the opportunity to depreciate them. However, you know, if you're going to take a seven-year investment, which is what these contract terms are, we're going to look at this and say, yes, there's really strong cash-on-cash returns occurring monthly. But at the end of that term, if you assume the ATN is worth nothing, it's probably going to be worth something. But let's just worst case assume it's worth nothing. Then you're getting internal rate of returns in that low teen range. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, there's a big additional tax benefit to this, which is essentially depreciating the machine over a course of about five years. So during that five years, would you say that it's typical for that income during that period of time to essentially be canceled out from depreciation? Yeah, very much so. So again, hard asset depreciated over five years. And when you look at what it's doing to shield income, a significant amount generally into that 75, 80% range of your income is shielded from tax. So that if you're going to take the impact of that cash, the returns are obviously higher. But yes, the depreciation is a significant opportunity within this asset class, and it's depreciated over five years, and your full investment of 104000 or any increments above that is depreciated out, and thus income is largely shielded, at least for the first five years. It would not be in year six and seven, obviously. Right, right. I'm guessing that you need to be an accredited investor to invest in a fund like this. That is right. The yeah. fund is set up in that manner. There is a prospectus out on it, an offering memorandum. We can certainly um, socialize with anyone and you do need to be an accredited investor. Yeah. And we'll talk about that more. Luckily, we are going to have a presentation from a representative of Daryl's company on the in our own investor group. As I mentioned before, that's certainly one of the benefits of being part of an investor club. So if you haven't done it yet, set up a conversation with me ahead of time so we can get to know each other at wealthformula.com. Now, let's keep going here. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about. So one of the things we talk about with these kinds of you know investments in the group is you know skin in the game, right? Do you invest in these things yourself? Yes, firm believer in that as well, philosophically. <clears throat> you know, we've got around 4 million into this space right now. So I'm a believer in the old Microsoft adage of eat your own dog food. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. And that's a very important thing to ask everyone. We're going to have a number of people doing private placements and we've had a number of them on the show. Make sure you know that there are people who actually believe in what they're putting out there and they're actually putting their own money in the deal. So that's good to know as well. Okay. So here's where I think a lot of people's heads are probably going right now, Daryl, including my own. And I'm sure you get this question all the time, but the things that come to my mind when I think about, you know, investing in ATMs is, all right, what's going to come by in three years or two years and make the ATM obsolete, right? You've probably looked into that as my guess. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? I have, and it was a large part of my diligence back when I entered the space, and I'm much more bullish today than I was back then, even though I got comfortable enough to enter it. And there's so many places I could take that question, but what I'll do is just try to distill it down to you know, some of the key summary points that we learned in the diligence, both back you know, four or five years ago, as well as our ongoing diligence on a daily basis. So I'm going to speak a, a little bit about the users, and then we'll talk kind of about the emerging technologies or replacement technologies, which you um, intimated as well. So when you look at the ATM, 
many of us probably don't use ATMs a lot because our demographic may not use it as much as, as others. So that's why people look at it and say, huh, mature asset and, and, you know, is there really viability here? Yeah, it's only seven years, but what's going to happen to cash and ATMs? Well, when we got into looking at who the majority of people are using ATMs, again, not our demographic, rather really the demographic of the following. A, they lack credit and therefore don't have credit cards. You see a lot of that on here. And then EBT, I spoke about that earlier. That has really accelerated the use of it because the debit cards are there and people are naturally going to their ATM to get their cash out because it's a vault there in the street. We've also learned a lot because we have cameras on pretty much every one of our ATMs. So ethnic groups in larger cities often use this kind of as a banking system. There's elements such as the ACH for payroll, you know, that a decade ago kind of became relevant and pervasive, whereas your employer no longer gave you your paycheck and you went to the bank to cash in and took cash out on a Friday. Rather, now it gets ACH'd or wired into your account. So therefore, you know, banks don't have as much branch traffic and you have to access cash somewhere. And a lot of people just do it when they're going to pick up their milk or water or cigarettes or whatever it may be at their local convenience store. So the whole payroll element plays into it. When you get into really studying the space from a Wall Street bank perspective, you go into New York City and other large tier one cities, there's a lot of ATM kiosks that are displacing tellers and you see banks closing branches and you see this kind of branch in a box concept, which is a whole nother element of discussion we could have. But increasingly, banks are partnering with us and putting their brand on our ATMs. And by the way, when you see an ATM on the street with, say, Chase on it, it could be Chase's ATMs, but it's often an investor's ATM and Chase is paying a branding fee to have their name on it. So they're seeing it as they can put a vault on the street and create convenience to access cash. The other element that's coming to bear a lot is using your mobile phone now to make the transaction. So we're just piloting that where instead of using your ATM card with a magnetic strip or a chip on it, you can use your mobile phone to walk up and do the transaction on your phone. And then I think in this demographic thing, finally, we get into some people just simply prefer cash over credit cards. And with the credit card hacks and breaches and security issues over the past two years of some large retailers, we've actually seen some spikes there as well. Let me lastly get into kind of where the core of your question was, and that is replacement technology. I'm a technologist at heart and I'm an entrepreneur in the telecom and technology space. So when I looked at this, I looked at it with some significant cynicism initially. And when you really pull back the covers on this element, you quickly get into when you look at all the new emerging technologies, for example, I use Apple Pay. I was an early adopter of Google Wallet, et cetera. They are truly predatory to a credit card, not to cash users, as you may think. So When you get out there and study all these technologies that are coming out, by and large, the predatory aspect is on the credit card side. And when you look at what banks are doing to say, hey, we're closing branches or we're moving kiosks and we want to create convenient access of cash. By the way, all the vaults in our ATMs are federally approved so banks can use it as kind of their their deposit or their cash on hand allocation. So that just creates a whole relevance relative to what an ATM looks like on a go forward for us. And emerging technologies, while they're there and they're real and there's certainly risk in every investment, I would argue most of the things on the horizon that are either playing out today or could be playing out in the next year, two, three, are predatory to the credit card. And let's just say something comes out transformative that really becomes predatory to cash in an ATM studying the demographic of who the power users are on our ATMs, 
it's a demographic that's a very slow adopter of technology. So even if something that would come out to make an ATM obsolete from a, a standpoint of cash, my argument would be it's a few years out. Yeah, I guess the one other theoretical thing that comes to my mind is the potential for a cashless society. But when I think of that, it just doesn't seem very likely to happen anytime soon. And that's probably something else that you've contemplated. Yeah, we have. And it's interesting. When you look at the monetary system at a worldwide level, it's actually growing. And I didn't know that until I got in and looked at, you know, the cash space. So we're not seeing runoff. We're seeing a half a percent, one percent across our portfolios of increase to it. Again, it's for all the aforementioned reasons. So just like, you know, technology was supposed to make us all paperless, you know, 15 years ago. And, you know, at some level, it's helped tremendously, but it hasn't removed paper. I mean, I think that's kind of some of the same parallel here. Could we become cashless in time? Yeah, I think so. But it's certainly not in the next, you know, six, seven years. And there's people that are always going to want to touch fuel cash. And there's a lot of demographics that for a variety of reasons are going to bank on an ATM. So that is certainly a risk. It really comes down to, is it ever a risk? And if so, how soon is it a risk? Because we're not talking about, again, a 20-year investment here. But in the millennials are an interesting you know, group study, because I always thought they were not cash users, but increasingly there's studies that have come out, et cetera, of how much they're even using ATMs. Now they use Venmo and they use all kinds of other technologies as I do as well. But it's just the ATM has a little more relevance when you really get inside of it from a diligence perspective than you would think based on how cash plays itself out. But there are risks and you're certainly noting one. Right. And to that point too, the big move globally that we know about is, and I'm sure you're aware of, it's in India where their major move was banning the 500 and 100 rupee bill, and it it created an absolute mess. And right now they're having a referendum on that because they've actually attributed deaths to the banning of those higher level bills. And so it didn't work well. And the only mention of it in the U.S. was really from some of the elites. And that has not really been about a cashless society per se, but rather a banning of just $100 bills. So it's really not on the horizon, and I don't really anticipate. I think there would be a very, very strong pushback, and as you mentioned, certainly not within a seven-year horizon. So, But it is something to think about. There's always good and there's always bad in these things. What do you like the best about this space, and what makes you put $4 million of your own money in it? I think it's the predictability of it. It's Unlike many businesses that I acquire or, or I bring off ground, you have to find, you know, users and you want the predictability, you know, of a customer to scale it. And in this space, it's out there, it's been proven and we're taking over existing locations. So it's like buying an existing company that has a very predictable cash flow and revenue stream and very predictable and loyal customer base. And it just operates on a daily basis with that type of, again, predictability or consistency. So that's what I like about it. Secondly, it's backed up by quite a few hard assets. The ATM itself is a hard asset. When you get into our offering memorandum, you will see that we negotiated if there's ever default payment from the management company to us, we take over that location agreement and that location agreement trades at big time multiples. So I like the collateral behind it, not just the fact that it's a hard piece of depreciable equipment or metal, rather also the paper in the event a default comes our way. And, you know, that in my mind mitigates and removes a lot of additional risk. It's really good stuff, Daryl. And I know you're a busy guy, so I just uh, want to wrap it up here and thank you again for being on the show today. 
and introducing us to this really interesting asset class. And folks, if you want to learn more, hopefully you're in the investor club already. Certainly, uh, you need to be an accredited investor. And if you sign up there on wealthformula.com, you can be part of that. And hopefully you'll be in time for an opportunity that we may be presenting from the Heller Capital Group. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks again, Daryl. Thank you, Buck. It was a privilege. Hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Daryl Heller about ATM machines. Now, usually I would direct you to him and his website to learn more about the opportunities, but per his request, he's actually suggested that you come and join us for a webinar. You have to be an accredited investor for this kind of thing. So you need to go on to wealthformula.com, sign up for the accredited investor list. And then once you and I have a established relationship, I can give you some more information potentially on deals like this, but we can't do it until then. So what I would suggest now is, again, if you're an accredited investor, meaning you make $200,000 per year, $300,000 if filing jointly, and you have a $1 million net worth or more, excluding your personal residence, then go to wealthformula.com, sign up for the investor club there. And this is obviously not the only deal that's going to be there, and it's not going to be there probably for a couple of weeks, but... It is definitely the place to be if you are interested in investing in stuff and want to get started. That said, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com.